Coming Back is a 100% listener-supported podcast. To support the show and to get your hands on some really cool podcast swag, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Your support keeps coming back ad-free, which is really awesome. Thank you. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, I'm talking to the author of Confessions of a Funeral Director, Caleb Wilde, whose experience as a sixth-generation funeral director has given him lots of deep and powerful insights on death and the ways we grieve. Also on the show today, I'm talking about how to craft an escape plan for grief. Where will you be? What will you do when you receive bad news? I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches the transformational power of grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. I am so grateful to be with you here today. As so many of you know from the 10-second intro spot and my posts on social media, this show is 100% supported by all of you via a platform called Patreon. Every month, some of you listeners chip in a dollar or more to say thank you for my heart's work, this podcast, and in return, I'm able to continue producing this show and doing all the work that I do behind the scenes and offer some really cool exclusive rewards as well. I wanted to let you know before we get started today that my monthly Google Hangout for people who chip in $33 or more per month is coming up. This event will take place on Monday, February 26th at 8 p.m. Central Time. As a reminder, this is an hour-long Ask Me Anything live event where you just show up from the comfort of your own laptop, no uh, software or weird things required, and just hang out with me. You can ask me questions about the podcast. You can ask for resources for you or someone that you know who's grieving. We can talk about your grief, your loss, your grieving process, or we can talk about anything else you want. This is my return gift back to you for supporting the show as often and as generously as you do. I am so excited to see you there. If any of you listening would like to join us on February 26th, you can make your pledge on Patreon to support the show over at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia, which is in the show notes. If you are already a Patreon supporter and you want to join and start uh, incorporating these monthly hangouts into your Patreon support, you can always increase your donation. After you pledge, you'll get immediate access to all of my Patreon-only posts, including the link to join us live for an Ask Me Anything event on Monday, February 26th at 8 p.m. Central. So today I want to talk about having an escape plan. I was talking with one of my friends this week, and like so many of you listeners out there, one of her loved ones is close to death. She's really going through it. Life is kind of chewing her up and spitting her out. And she and her family and a collection of doctors have all determined that it's a waiting game at this point, and that for her loved one, it's just a matter of time. She's experiencing anticipatory grief, of course, where you grieve before a death actually happens. But she expressed a fear with me as well that I remember having when my family entered our own, why do they call it a game? It's not fun in the slightest waiting game. 
she expressed concern and anxiety about getting the news, the moment that she receives the news. So getting the news at work, getting the news while driving, getting the news while she was out somewhere with friends. She knows already that she probably won't be with her loved one when she receives the news because they live far away. So what is she going to do and where is she going to go when she gets it? I told her that it's a really good idea to think about and actually it might be comforting and a reassuring exercise to do and that is to strategize an escape plan for the moment that she gets the news. And this is something I wish I had known in my grief. So I wanted to share it here with you today. So here's what a grief escape plan looks like. A grief escape plan is what exactly takes place after you get the call. After you get the news, after you hang up the phone, when the emotions start coming up for you and you need to move, you need to get somewhere, you need to take care of yourself quickly and get to a space that feels safe and secure to you. Literally, a grief escape plan is what you do and where you go when grief hits you. It's a plan of action. So for example, if you get the call at work, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? Are you going to excuse yourself from the meeting that you're in? Are you going to find an empty conference room or a stairwell to process? Do you have an open floor plan with glass rooms everywhere so you need to take the elevator down to your car to sit there to have a moment? If so, what are you going to say or do if somebody else gets in the way of the elevator, if somebody crosses your path, or if somebody gets on the elevator with you? Script it out. If you get the call while driving, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? Are you going to immediately pull over? Are you going to keep driving down to the lake that you used to go to as a kid? Are you going to drive straight home? Are you going to call your next door neighbor and ask them to handle carpool today? Are you going to listen to a specific song? Are you going to have a bag packed and ready to go at all times in the trunk? If you get the call at the grocery store, are you going to abandon your cart and leave? Are you going to have a moment in the patio furniture section? Are you going to buy a frozen meal or two or three or four so you don't have to worry about cooking for the next couple of days? Are you going to call your spouse and tell them the news and look at checkout aisle magazines while you're talking? What's the plan? In all of this, grief growers, know that the choices in this, the design of this, the script of this is entirely up to you. Now, please know that this week I am not trying to give you homework to do, but for those of you out there who like to plan 18 steps ahead like I do, it can be really, really reassuring and calming to have a plan to stick to in the moment you get the news that changes your life. You've orchestrated all of this in your head to the best of your ability beforehand. So once it happens, you get to go on autopilot. I'm comparing this in my brain to like a fire drill in elementary school. So you know the fire is coming. You have these emotions that come up along with the fact that you know that the fire is coming. But no matter what, you know regardless that you're lining up quietly in the classroom, waiting to be counted, and then being escorted to a safe place outside of the building by a teacher or another adult. You know already that you'll have a meeting place with your friends, and you know that your parents will know where to find you. You won't know a lot about the fire, and you probably won't be able to predict a lot of the emotions that will come up in the moment, but what you will know is what you're physically doing, where you're physically going, and who you should and shouldn't be speaking to in that moment. That provides you with a lot of certainty when something uncertain is happening. What I'm offering here is an exercise in creating a loving safety net for yourself. 
You're terrified of getting the news when you're at work or your child's school or out in public at the Starbucks. Of course you are. Of course you are. And there's this temptation. There's this resistance to not think about it because you don't want to really think about it before it happens because that's kind of dark and morbid, right? But what I'm arguing here today, grief growers, is no, it's not morbid. It's actually probably one of the best things you can possibly do for yourself in preparing for really big, really heartbreaking news. It's letting you and the people around you know that you're going to have a plan to take care of yourself in the immediate aftermath. And that's a really big deal. And while I'm all for crying in public spaces, I do this pretty frequently. I acknowledge and I remember this feeling of not wanting to share that rawness so immediately and so intensely until I had my own time away to process it. And that's kind of the space and time and escape that you can give yourself with this exercise. At the very beginning of it, it seems like a lot to think about and hash out because it's like one of those, like in Cosmo magazines, where there's a really big question at the top, and then there's a tree of answers. So if yes, this, and if no, this, and it branches off like 18 different directions, it seems like a lot to think about. But in that moment, when it happens, you become so grateful that you get to boom, switch on autopilot. It makes a huge difference. You've already acted this out. You've orchestrated this all in your head. It makes such a huge difference. And one more thing, if you think this doesn't apply to you because you don't have a loved one who's on death's door right now, think again. If you've ever experienced grief, you know that grief can hit you anywhere. You can get any sort of news anywhere, anytime, or you can even just have grief hit you out of nowhere without someone having to tell or call or prompt you first. You could be buying socks at Target and just get hit with this massive wave of nostalgia. You just never know when grief's going to step in. So what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? What's the plan? With a grief escape plan, you get to decide the aftermath of these events, at least a little. You get something that you have control and power over, something that's familiar, and maybe even something that you share with the people around you is like a, hey, heads up, here's my out if something like this happens. I told my friend in this moment that no matter when or where she gets this news about her loved one, she knows a few things for sure. After she gets the call, she's going to get to her car as soon as she can. She's going to drive home. She's going to pack a bag. And then she's going to drive to her loved ones. No matter what, that's the plan. A grief escape plan is just this extra layer of security, surety, and self-love in the midst of grief. Which we could always use more of. Join me on Facebook Live this Monday, February 19th, and we'll talk about how to craft your escape plan for grief. Have you ever created an escape plan for yourself, on purpose or not on purpose? Do you want to? What places are you most afraid or anxious about grieving in? I would love to know how grief comes up for you and how you get yourself to safe, emotionally secure spaces in the minutes and hours following grief. Just like my Facebook page, Shelby for Scythia, Intuitive Grief Guide to be notified when the broadcast begins. Next up, we'll talk to funeral director and author Caleb Wilde about his book Confessions of a Funeral Director and how his work with the dead has changed his perspective on life. Caleb Wilde is a sixth-generation funeral director. He has a graduate degree in theology and a postgraduate degree in death, religion, and culture. He recently released a book with Harper One entitled Confessions of a Funeral Director. Caleb, thank you so much for coming on, coming back today, and for sharing your book and these insights with us through 
Confessions of a Funeral Director, I would love to go ahead and jump in and have you tell us your personal loss story. Yeah, so I am writing about things that I haven't experienced as intimately as others. I haven't lost uh, a parent or a child, thank God. Uh, grandparents have been the things that have been closest to me. In fact, uh, you could say that a lot of my grief is secondary grief. A lot of my trauma is secondary trauma because of what I, I experience as a, a funeral director, seeing these things daily. And I don't want to assume that that makes my perspective any better, but I do feel as though it's given me some degree of objectivity uh, to look at things because that's what I'm paid to do. I'm paid to be objective when it comes to death. I'm paid by families to be uh, a thinker or a the heart when hearts are broken or the mind when when minds are broken. So a lot of those reflections that I've had from my experiences as working as the heart and mind for people who are broken uh, translate to my loss experience. Uh, and again, it's very secondary. But the things, things that I see uh, regularly, and I'm probably a little different than most funeral directors in that I take them in a little deeper, uh, which is not good uh, for the longevity of a career in, in, in the funeral profession. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, it, it, it helps me to reflect deeply, which is what I like to do. I, I've always been willing to walk into the darkness to find things. Uh, I'm the one who pushes away his fear, uh, to go find the light switch in the, the dark auditorium. Um, so this is something that uh, kind of suits my personality. And um, so it's not uh, a lot of these stories I share. A lot of my lost stories are shared uh, with the people that I serve. I want to talk about the actual title of your book. The title of your blog is Confessions of a Funeral Director. And I'm interested to know what exactly makes your insights, what makes your book and your blog, like quote unquote confessions? Like, is there some taboo as a funeral director about sharing what you see and experience? Or do you have maybe a different perspective than other people who are in the industry? Mostly when funeral directors share their stories, they try to find the outrageous ones. And uh, mm. they're kind of like... I don't want to say it, but I, it's the best term that's coming to my head right now. It's kind of like death porn, where it's it's just all the extravagance and all of the the funny or the deep or the dark without any of the real. Uh, and so I've kind of wanted to steer away from that. Uh, so confessions for me had multiple meanings. Um, one was that it's personal and two uh, i studied theology i have a grad degree in theology uh, so i was kind of drawing from that background where confessions aren't just something that's personal but they're also something that's shareable and uh, our ideas that touch the core of, of value systems so 
that's kind of what I was going for with confessions of a funeral directors. And I wanted something a little bit deeper than, than most of the, the stuff out there. That's just the extremes. Uh, I wanted to, I wanted to look at some of the deep stuff. So, so this is like death therapy as opposed to <laughs> death porn, you could say, I, I suppose. I like that. And it reminds me of a couple of other industries like public service industries or healthcare or things like that, where the first question that people will ask at a cocktail party is, man, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen? What's the craziest <laughs> call you've ever been onto? And, and you're like, well, yeah, that's a slice of it. But at the same time, there's in those questions, there's very little room for, for taking that step back and observing or finding like right. the human moments in there. It's the question that I guess get asked all the time. And um, I, I'm usually tentative to share. I don't really like sharing those stories. Uh, and maybe that's just me, but um, you know, that is what it is. Kind of leading into that and speaking of being approached at cocktail parties or just being approached about death in general, you talk about this concept in your book that all of us that are not in healthcare or, or the funeral industry being death amateurs, where we've moved death so far away from us, where other people are in charge of it, it's in somebody else's hands. When it happens, you call a phone number and then things happen X, Y, Z, that we're not equipped to really handle death anymore. And mentally, emotionally, physically, like it's, it's hard to wrap our brains around. I'm interested kind of in hearing you expand on that a little bit more. And, and yeah, that was... I just loved how you phrase that because it's such a small phrase, but it contains this fear of death happening to us, this fear of death happening to others, this this mentality of the death negative, that death is gross and it's dark and nobody wants to be around it. And 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 yeah, just like this morbid thing that we always want to keep at this this distance. How did we get here? Uh capitalism partially. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> yeah. Uh for sure. I mean the funeral industry is is built around making ourselves out to be professionals and everybody else to be amateurs. If if we can make death super scary, uh we can make it to something that you can't do on your own, uh, then you need us and you need to hire us to help you with this big, scary death problem. But it's not just that. I mean, we're, we have also given authority over, well, authority used to, you know, it was kind of centered in religion like 200, 300 years ago. And then it started to be centered in science, which is good. And it's certainly better than the whims of a religious tyrant. And now we're kind of centering authority in our individualism and who we are as ourselves as people, uh, which is probably a, a healthier step yet. But when it went to science, uh, we all of our hard problems uh, supposedly can be solved by the people who are trained in education. And this is also true when it comes to dying. Uh, when somebody's dying, it is hard. It is so hard. And we think that the authoritative center lies with those who are trained and educated. And what we haven't realized, and maybe this is uh, where we need to move forward, is that when it comes to death and dying, 
education doesn't create an authority or it doesn't create a professional, uh, but love does. It's it's a very mm-hmm. simple idea, uh, but when your loved one is dying, what what gives you authority uh, and what makes you really the best person to care for that person is because you love them. And so that death amateur idea isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's something that has been created, I think, out of the scientific authority, out of uh, some of the religious authority. And, uh, you know, funeral directors have moved into that. We've made ourselves the death professionals. Uh, We've even called embalming a science uh, because we want to give or portend this idea that we sit as authoritative figures over this very difficult thing, similar to a doctor. Uh, And uh, it's, it's wrong. It's not true. Uh, There is no such thing as death amateurs, but most of us believe we are because we've professionalized people who don't deserve to be the professionals when it comes to dying and death. Yeah, we'll never be doctors, unless you are, or you you won't be a funeral director unless you are. And I certainly know things that you will never know or never need to know, just as a doctor knows things that I'll never know and I'll never need to know. Uh, But they aren't at the center of the story. Uh, The center of the story is is the real professional uh, and that's the loved ones uh, they know the dying and the dead better than anyone uh, because this is people we're not machines uh, we're, we're not robots uh, doctors can't make the process better uh, if we were machines then maybe they could if we were robots then maybe so but we are the ultimate authorities on the people that we love and the people that we love are the authorities on us. They know us because we've given ourselves away to them. Uh, we give parts of ourselves to the people that we love and vice versa. And, and that's the way it should be. And so when somebody dies or somebody's dying, we have a part of them in us, uh, a, a big part of them. And uh, we know how to care for them because we've been carrying them around with us and caring for them in our hearts for years. Uh, It's just the beauty of what it means to be spiritual. It's the beauty of what it means to be human. And so I think that we need a a change of paradigm, uh, a change of perspective where we realize that uh, the authorities here aren't the nursing homes. Uh, The authorities aren't the funeral homes or the funeral directors, uh, but um, being that uh, the dying and the dead reside in us, uh, we are the ones. I'm getting chills and I'm, I'm tearing up on this end because this is a belief in my own grief experience that I felt but could not articulate and couldn't, I almost couldn't bring it forth into physical reality because you know, grief brain is just such a monster. I was frozen at time. And my favorite story, my absolute favorite story in your book is the story of Tommy and his family and of you visiting their home to pick up Tommy. And 
asking his wife and his other female relatives, would you like to be the ones to dress him for this service? And this, it touched me and the response and they said, oh yes. And they just, this relief, this seeming like lifting of, of this pressure off of their shoulders of, oh, that last, you know, ritual, being able to take part in that, that death care experience. And I immediately flashed to my own funeral home experience, which I've never shared on this podcast before, but I remember the evening, my mom died in the afternoon, but in the evening we called our local funeral home to come pick her up. And it was very much like you talk about in this book, this buttoned up, okay, they're here to do their job now. And there was no saying goodbye. And she was whisked out the front door. And the next sure. day, the day after when we did a viewing, they had they had covered her in something that looked like green astroturf, like a carpet. And I guess mm-hmm. it never occurred to us that we could have picked out clothes for her, that we could have seen her off in a certain way, that we could have gotten there early to help prepare, like all these smaller rituals that would have been so much more meaningful, even like fixing her hair or bringing her favorite lipstick or things like that to the funeral home. It just never occurred to any of us, my dad, my sister, or me to ask for these for these rights, for these privileges, because she did still reside in us. And so when I got to the funeral home, it was such a shock to see her in such a different state than any of us remembered her. And I'm interested, I'm kind of leading into a question with this, is what can, what are we allowed to ask for from our funeral homes, from our funeral directors in this process? I know I have so many grief growers listening to this podcast who are in a place of anticipatory grief where they're waiting for someone they love to die. And when that day does come, what can they ask for? How much can they participate in this process? I would start at a fundamental idea. uh, And it's one that we all assume, but maybe we just need to emphasize is that the dying and the dead are ours. Uh, Uh Say that again. Say that again for the people in the back. (laughs) They're ours. They are our loved ones. Uh, They are not the hospitals. They're not the doctors. They're not the nursing homes. uh, They're not the funeral directors. They're not the funeral homes. They're ours. Wow. And so we need to emphasize that and we need to allow ourselves uh, that uh, knowledge where when they are at the funeral home, the funeral home is simply holding them for us. Or when they're at the nursing home, the, the nursing home is holding them or the hospital is holding them for us, but they are ours. So I think we need to feel entitled uh, no matter what or where we are with our dying and our dead, because it's a t- an entitlement that is, uh, it's simply the way it is. It's just, you know, it's one of those things like you, you reach down and you can only go so far and then you hit rock bottom. And that rock bottom truth is like the simple idea. And you try to dig deeper, but you can't because it's rock bottom. That's just, that's it. You know, that, so you hit something and you just can't go any deeper and that's, that's it. I mean, this is the rock bottom of, of the whole thing is that they are ours. Uh, and so as ours, uh, we're entitled and whatever we feel we need to do, uh, we're entitled to do. So if it's to dress our loved one, 
we're entitled. If it's to do the hair of our loved one, we're entitled. If the loved one dies in our house and you want to keep them there for a couple days, you are entitled to keep them there for a couple days. If you want to have the viewing quickly or you want to have it for a while at your home, you're entitled. Uh, so we we need to go back to that you know rock bottom place that foundational idea that that these are our people and uh, they're ours first um and it's true that uh doctors and funeral directors serve a purpose at the end uh but when it all comes down to it they're they're ours we are entitled to express our grief express ourselves, our rituals, our family, our community rituals, we are entitled to do whatever we want to do and need to do. That was awesome. I just have to say that was so incredible. And that thought has literally never entered my mind. It seems like we yeah. have this at the moment of death, when you turn your hands on the clock and you pull the, uh, the curtain over the clock and time stops forever, that that person, that loved one is no longer ours. And it's this, it, it relates back to this fear of the transition of death, to the the permanentness of death, all these things related to it saying, oh, this is no longer mine. We have instantly cut ties in this moment. And it's just, right, not right. it's not, <laughs> it's this continuing relationship. And as the grief process sets in, whether it's anticipatory grief before a death happens or when the death happens, then you start to grieve. You go into in your book in a lot of different places about this concept of grief being a form of worship. And I would just love if you could like expound on that for a little bit. Yeah, that I, so that's a permission idea as well. Uh, I think for those of us that come from a religious background like I do, we have a, a view of God that's very austere, uh, powerful, uh, unmoved, and unemotive, really. Of course, uh, those of us who are able to maintain our religious persuasions about God uh, do so because we eventually come to the place where we see God as loving. And so that Seeing God as loving, we need to, and I need to, all of us need to, allow that to play out farther than most of us do. So if God is loving, uh, then there are, there are very much similarities between us and God. Uh, and you could say that of course, uh, you know, the Judeo-Christian heritage is that we are reflections, uh, we are images of God. Uh, so if we are that, then grief isn't not real for God, it's more real for God. Mm -hmm. uh, sorrow isn't not real for God, it's more real for God. Uh, and so what we've done, I think, is we've basically seen worship as a very limited thing where <clears throat> it takes place on, you know, whatever our holy day is. And uh, it has to do with austerity and reverence and it's never messy. 
But if if we are reflections of God, then worship is pretty much inherently messy, and it's it's something that uh, we need to transition from the Sunday morning view that most of us have of worship, and give ourselves permission, not just permission, but allow ourselves to see God as somebody who is able to cry with us. Now, however we define that, it's different, it's different for everybody. But if we, if we say that God cries with us, or if we say that uh, God sheds tears with us, it gives us permission. So when we are, be- if God does that, then we are becoming like God more fully when we are allow ourselves to lean in to our tears. Uh, if God does indeed grieve, then we're becoming more fully like God when we grieve. So grief is worship. Grief is us becoming like God. Uh, and I think, like I said, it's a permission idea because so many believers have this idea that God does not grieve, that God does not cry, that God does not feel the way that we feel. Uh, and so because they feel that way, they don't have permission from their deity to do these things. I'm just saying that uh, you have permission <laughs> uh, because I believe that uh, you know when we engage in those things, we're not becoming less. Uh, we're actually becoming more like God. Uh, when we become more human, uh, which of course goes against a lot of the things that we think of when we think of God, but the more human we become, it's not that we're re- moving farther away, it's that we're moving closer because we're his image or God's image. Um, so yeah. So that's the idea with grief as worship is that uh, so many Christians don't feel permission. Uh, so many religious people don't feel permission to grieve because their God is is uh, a million light years away from the human experience. I'm coming up with this story that I've also never shared on the podcast before, but is actually over on my website in the about section. And I have an aunt who is very, very attuned to God. She calls herself an intuitive or a medium, but she is this channel to the larger wisdom of the universe. And in one conversation she and I were having uh, after my mom's death, she brought herself in kind of with the energy of this all-loving God and asked me to have a conversation with it. And I was angry. I was pissed. I was how could you let this happen? The bad things happen to good people. I'm so young. I can't believe you'd think I can't need a mother at this time in my life. All this stuff. And I was just railing against this God. And the voice that came back, and this is what I have on my website, the voice that came back is, I wish you would just let me hold you. And in that instant, it was the same kind of that relief feeling from the Tommy story of just this pressure being lifted off my shoulders. It never occurred to me that a God would exist that would want to hold me in pain. You know, sure. this this idea that that God is willing to be in the trenches, God is willing not only to see grief, but to experience it and to hold us through it. It just, and that literally just broke open my entire world to this concept of, I have permission to participate in this too. If 
if some right. entity as big as the universe, as big as God, as big as whatever you'd like to believe in, wants to hold me through this process, then I have permission to participate in this as well. And that is huge. That to- that moment totally blew my mind. So this concept of grief and continued remembrance as acts of worship, not as pathology, which is kind of how we've framed it in our Western mm-hmm. eyes, especially American minds, um, yeah. is, is radical. This is just a radical take on grief, which I love. And um, and moving to that idea of remembrance, you also talk about a concept in your book of this passive remembrance and active remembrance. And you use this example of walking into the home of two parents whose daughter has just died and they have this shrine set up at her place at the table. It's got stuffed animals and photos and drawings from her cousins and 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 things like that. And it seems like in the book you had this gut reaction of, oh, that's not right. Something about that's kind of off. <laughs> yeah. And But then mm. there's this shift, like you do, you have this reflective place where you step back and you're like, oh, this is them choosing how they want to remember her for the rest of their life with her memory, this co-participation. Mm. Um, so can you kind of enlighten our grief growers a little bit on your definitions of passive remembrance versus active remembrance and maybe how we can bring that active remembrance of our loved ones into our lives. So it kind of goes along with some of the things that I was talking about earlier. Uh, so yeah, I read, uh, that in some cultures, uh, when you're grieving, you're exempt from religious law. And the idea there is that uh, when you're grieving, there's a part of you that's died. So it's almost as though you're exempt because you yourself are dead. And so I I love that or the idea behind that. Uh, When we give ourselves away, and and, uh, this is concept that I weave throughout the book, you know, especially there's one chapter called Sarah's Mosaic, where I talk about how funerals are mosaics of the deceased. Yeah. We each bring our own pieces that uh, our loved one has given us, and we bring them all together, and we create a living mosaic. Uh, And I do believe that we give pieces away of ourselves, and we receive parts of others uh, so that we're made up. You know, we like to think that we're individuals and we are, uh, but we're made up largely by the people that love us. And we don't even need to know those people. The people who have carried us here, grandparents, our ancestors, uh, these people, their love, their energy uh, continues on to now to me. I am here because people loved and wanted me and called me to existence. It may not be that way with my parents. <laughs> Maybe I was an accident to them. <laughs> but 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 I've been called here. Uh, and so I am built up by these ancestors and I am built up by the people who have loved me. I am not just mine. I am many people. And uh, so I know when somebody dies, there's parts of us in them too. Part of us dies. Part of us dies when somebody dies. 
uh, and part of them still lives on in us. But if we if we really do believe that we've given ourselves away and that we've given parts of ourselves to the people that we love, when they die, part of us goes with them. And so it is as though part of us dies when we experience death. Uh, and to think that we'll ever get over that, to think that that has an end, or uh, to think that there's such a thing as closure. Uh, if you lose an arm or you lose a hand, there's never going to be a time in your life where uh, that doesn't affect the way you live. It will always affect you because it's a part of you that's now missing. So closure in my mind is a myth. There's no such thing as, as the closure that uh, a lot of us want. Now, of course, gr our relationship changes and we learn to, we learn to dance with the limp or we, we learn to get around without the missing parts. And so we adapt and we change. Uh, maybe that's how some people define closure, but the idea that we're, we're done with it, that we no longer grieve, uh, is a myth. Um, so why not instead of, why not instead of ignoring that, instead of looking for closure and just saying, uh, you know, that I'm going to step away from this now. I've had my month, I've had my year of grieving, and now I'm done. Uh, why not just acknowledge the fact that it's a myth, and instead of walking away from our grief at a certain point, we lean into it. Uh, and instead of seeking closure, uh, we practice what I call active remembering, which is where we acknowledge uh, that our, we are intimately connected with the people that we've lost. And instead of just saying, okay, well, you know, that's over now, the funeral's done, let's do something very practical. Uh, maybe make a shrine, or let's try a way to give the death space in our lives. Uh, the deaths have, the, the dead have been pushed out quite literally, uh, physically in, in all of our spaces. Our houses do not have spaces for the dead. Uh, our lives that don't have spaces for the dead. You know, maybe we have a picture up in the living room of some of the people who have died. That's a space. Uh, and, and, and instead of thinking that's weird, I, I think we should lean into it a little bit more, you know, instead of, you know, well, should I put this picture of grandpa and grandpa in the corner? Um, instead of thinking, well, maybe that's a little too morbid. Let's lean into it a little bit more. Uh, let's explore how we can actively give the dead space. Uh, because uh, whether we acknowledge it or not, uh, they've taken up space and they've taken a part of us. So, so that idea for me is, as just that uh, so often our remembering is passive. We remember and, uh, you know, smell is very uh, a strong uh, stimulant for remembrance. Maybe you sm all of a sudden you smell something that was your grandmother or your mother and all the memories come flooding back and it's beautiful and the tears are healthy, uh, but it's, a, it's a largely a passive thing. Um, and I, I think that it, it's, it's, instead of looking at it as morbid, 
um, we should, like I did in that story, and pathological, I think that the healthy thing is for us to do it actively and give the dead a little space in, in our lives. I love this idea. And it's one of my favorite ideas in your book. It's actually one I talked about, I think in episode four of this season of coming back, it's my interview with Morgan Brown, but the entire top of the show was talking about our right to continue to miss people. And it's, it's just been one of my favorite episodes that come up. I know um, in the last pieces of your book, you talk about bringing your son home, Jeremiah. Yeah. That just, Mm -hmm warmed and touched my heart. And I thought was such a great way to wrap up this, such a balanced book of the yin and the yang of death is the death is not all cold and bony, but is also where, you know, the dirt helps the flowers grow into the beauty that they are and brings, brings life into the world in its own way, because death is where heaven exists. But I'm curious to know, how old is he now? He's five. What are you teaching him about death and grief and the work that you do? What does he think that you do or who you are? Uh, well, he wants, he loves work, like just any type of work. So I actually dress him up in a suit. I bought him a suit. He's got uh, <laughs> uh, dress shoes and he'll come in to work with me. And uh, he's learning. I mean, uh, you know, you have to be able to look people in the eye and be sociable if you want to do well at funerals. And he's learning to do that, but we, we have him passing out cards and he loves it. I mean, he just loves to come in. Uh, and of course he comes in with me because the funeral business isn't like most jobs where you are able to separate yourself. It all blends together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, I, random when I'm, when my wife is out working or she's at the grocery store or whatever shop or whatever she's doing. And I have Jeremiah that if I have to go to the funeral home, he's coming with me. And, and uh, that's just the blending of, of this profession. So he's seen many, many dead people. uh, And he, uh, uh, the the other, it was actually last week he came in with me. And he asked if he could touch the hand of the dead person, which is the first time he's asked that. And he he held their hand. He just grabbed it and held it. Um, and of course, he says it's cold. Uh, but this is I mean, this is an observation that I thought was beautiful um, because it's a fact of reality. Um, and so I I I don't shield him. You know, I I he is more resilient than I am. So now's the time, right? (laughs) Right. Well, and kids aren't afraid or grossed out or like wigged out or, or or, uh, how do I phrase this? They're not death averse until we tell them to be. That's right. Until we give them our fears, (laughs) uh, which we do. Uh, We're we're really good at giving our children our own fears. Um, And I, as a parent, am always conscious of that. You know, the fears that I have. Uh, will be transferred to my children. Um, so, uh, but yeah, um, he, it's not a difficult concept for him. Um, and I don't use any flowery words, you know, or, or religious concepts that the person is in a better place and all of these things. I, 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 I those things are fine. I have no problem with those, but I, I just want him to I want him to see it for as it is and let him interpret it as he wishes. And I, I love the fact that he comes in with me and he sees these things and, 
and he says that as he holds the hand of the deceased, uh, it's cold, Dad. Um, I like that. So it's, it's good. How can we become more grateful for our lives in the face of death and not because we're afraid of it? Because so many people see death and they're like, oh my gosh, I've seen death and now I'm going to do everything and check off my bucket list and this whole thing. There's this scrambling to be grateful for life. Mm-hmm. And then there's yeah. this other concept of seeing death and seeing the reverence in that and then having that softness of, wow, I, I get to be alive. So how can, we, how can we hold that second picture so we're not even, we're not grateful because we're afraid? That's a great question. Uh um yeah i i mean i i i've never thought of that before i think you're right uh we do we 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 let the fear motivate us uh coming out on the other side uh way too often um and i, I so so that's why i suppose we have to do the deep work now um you know i've often people have said to me um that uh, they don't want to read my book, and that's fine. But they don't want to read it because uh, they're grieving. Or and um, and in my head, I think, well, you're probably right. You probably should have read it before you're grieving because there's some deep work that needs to be done beforehand. Um, we can't assume that if we only think about death. Uh, in the death times, if that's the only time we think about it, uh, we can't assume that we'll have a healthy relationship with it when it comes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think too often, I don't know, I guess uh, most of us feel like we can cultivate the relationship when it's here and then that's it. Um, but I suppose that the, the more we lean in to it now, uh, the, it starts now, the, our closeness with deaths, our embracing, embracing our mortality uh, starts now, then, then maybe we won't have that headlong fear of getting everything done and we'll be able to uh, deal with death a little bit more uh, lovingly. But yeah, that's good. That's, that's a good point. Thank you. I appreciate that. And as we're wrapping up today, I want to let everybody know where can they find your book? Where can they get in touch with you. I love following you on Facebook because it's surprisingly funny. So I would love for you to share your Facebook page with us. Um, and just any other places people can get in touch, discover your insights, all that jazz. Yeah. Um, so my book, I'm thrifty. And if you're thrifty like me, it's the cheapest on Amazon, but, uh, it's everywhere. I mean, it's in bookstores and uh, so forth. Um, Twitter, Caleb Wild is my handle. And then on Facebook, it's confessions of a funeral director. Uh, so I'm there not as much as I want to be because I'm working a lot. Uh, but I do, uh, post, I try to post a couple times a week and, uh, and so that's, where I am. That's something that's very dear to me. And uh, hopefully work loosens up so that I can invest a little more time into those things. Sure. I'll go ahead and tell you my favorite post on Facebook was when you let the auto fill in for iPhone sentences to predict people's deaths. So you type in the sentence, you know, here lies your first and last name who died from, and then you let your phone 
finish <laughs> the way it thinks you're going to die. And it's scary, isn't <laughs> there it? There were some that were hilarious, though. It's like, here lies uh, Arnold James, who wasn't a very remarkable person. <laughs> and some of them, of course, are, are gibberish and things like that. But it just brings this whole other, um, it brings death into the forefront of our minds in a in a less heavy way and sometimes i think i need that um yeah because there is sure. the tendency to to weigh ourselves down like to anchor ourselves oh, with yeah. death and it's like yeah. well, okay oh, let's let's you know we can chuckle about this for a second so yeah. that was probably my favorite post over there well caleb thank you so much for sharing your time with us today your insights reflections and pieces from your book i am so recommending this to everyone I see on the street, especially if before you're grieving, if you're grieving right now, if you have friends who are grieving, uh, et cetera, anyone who's going to face death. So your market is literally everyone. <laughs> everyone ever should read this book. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Shelby. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so, so much to Caleb Wilde, who spent a beautiful Sunday morning recording this episode with me. Caleb came back by leaning into his work as a funeral director instead of pulling away from it, and by continuing to ask questions about how God, death, and grief are all intertwined. You can find a link to Caleb's website where you can find his book, Confessions of a Funeral Director, in the show notes. Join me for Facebook Live this Monday, February 19th at 1 o'clock Central Time, where we'll talk about crafting an escape plan for your grief. And we received not one, but two new Patreon supporters this week. Shout out to Joanna and Stephanie. You two are my heart song and literally, like I said earlier, the lifeblood of this show. It is such a true, true gift to keep on doing this work with the knowledge that there are others out there cheerleading it on. As a reminder for all the rest of you, Patreon is a set-it-and-forget-it way to support the show every month and get fun rewards like stickers and off-air time with me for doing it. You can find a link to my Patreon page in the show notes if you'd like to support as well. If you liked this episode, support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts and telling a friend about coming back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Mr. Addie Goldstein who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com, subject line, podcast. As always, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you, I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world, and I love you, because even through grief, we are growing.